0: So Pelosi visits Taiwan. I will say this. I don't really want to go into that because that doesn't really have too much to do with mining. I mean, geopolitics and mining, as we know, are deeply related, but I do want to say a couple of things on that. Hello and welcome to the Northern Miner podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli, back in Berlin, back in the studio, so to speak. The only thing I'm going to say about this is how much this Pelosi trip mirrors the lead up to the Ukraine war. Just on a gut level, I don't think it's going to turn out the same. But who knows? I don't think anybody wants that right now. Although if I was China, I'd be going, this is my chance. Because now I have cover from a moral perspective that I was provoked into attacking Taiwan. But I would just say this from the Western perspective, if we were to say that the Ukraine war was a communications breakdown, long story short, I would say the problem was that the West had this idealistic perspective that Ukraine should be able to do whatever it wants. It should be able to join whatever military alliance and trade bloc it wants because it's a sovereign country and forget about who this bully is beside it and that they should be able to do whatever it wants and losing sight of the pragmatic situation and reversing the roles. You know, if Alaska or Hawaii were breakaway states of the US and then China or Russia started arming them and started visiting them a lot, we'd probably have an issue with that. Right. And I just see the exact same thing happening here with Pelosi and Taiwan. It's like, well, Taiwan should be able to do whatever it wants. And Pelosi's a free person and she's visiting a free republic. So again, this idealism versus having a more pragmatic, like, well, you know, if the tables were turned, if the roles were reversed, how would we feel about it? And I'm not saying it's wrong what she's doing. You know, it's just like, yeah, in theory, Ukraine should be able to do whatever it wants. But we also see the result, which nobody can say is good. Nobody. It looks like a complete, utter disaster. And I was just thinking to myself, leave the idealism To the philosophers and the academics, politicians need to be pragmatic. And this is the huge error I see. I mean, you see it in the German economy. I was flying back from Crete. I mean, it was hilarious. I was flying back from Crete and this guy behind me on the plane was saying to his kids, Hey, look, it's the Tesla factory. And so I said to my girlfriend, I was like, Oh, look, it's the Tesla factory. Cool. And then like, 30 seconds later, you see these windmills. And there's like four windmills, five windmills, and one of them is barely turning. And I'm just thinking to myself, this couldn't even power the light on my bike, much less the German economy. And it's the same thing. It's this idealism versus pragmatism. And that brings us back to the mining industry because In a sense, you could say, well, what is Taiwan? What is Ukraine? What does all this stuff have to do with mining? But in a sense, mining is a very political industry, as we all know, as we look at the German energy situation. And so I don't see this being discussed a ton, this idea of idealism versus pragmatism. But as we talk to Eric Buckland here and we discuss how the environmental theme is starting to take root, which is excellent. Again, out of what I want to say out of Cameco's playbook here, that we're actually good for the environment, that we are a part of the solution. I think a part of that argument is an appeal to pragmatism. Because to me, part of this problem of dumping all of oil and gas, you know, the Green Party here in Germany is growing in popularity. So I think we just like there has to be an appeal to pragmatism. This whole idealism in a political context, quite frankly, is dangerous. And I think that argument applies as we make the case for this industry. We can't be 110% idealists about it. That's for the philosophers and the academics. We are dealing with the real world of real solutions that basically don't please anybody. Things are not black and white. They are shades of gray. As we discuss with Eric Buckland, a mining recruiter for Lincoln Strategic, in this week's podcast, another very interesting update. He talks about technology and how robotics are playing an increasing role in the industry from a mining employment perspective, and there is nuance to that. It doesn't mean that there are necessarily less workers. It just means maybe sometimes people are working from Toronto rather from the actual mine when they're doing their mining. So a very interesting update from Eric Buckland. And also, I mean, we have an update on this precious metals trial. Bloomberg just came out with an article here from Profits to Pay J.P. Morgan's gold secrets spill out in court. Now, this narrative has been haunting this space for at least since the 2008 crisis. I mean, I got into this whole narrative, so to speak, before I was working for any mining newspaper. Like My original interest was after the 2008-2009 crisis. And I just started becoming interested in the gold narrative. It was the most kind of sensational, salacious. It was at a time when conspiracy, I'd argue, was starting to go mainstream. It was a seminal moment in the media space. There's a wave of conspiratorial narrative that was just starting to spill out. You know, a tea party started to happen and all this stuff. Very interesting time. And so at least since then, and it's probably been going on since far before, you know, GATA and all those guys. So what's interesting is, okay, we've had this debate and it kind of hasn't gone anywhere. I mean, everybody's kind of entrenched in their positions as far as how they feel about it. So we have this trial. So let's just quickly look at a couple of points here. The trial of JP Morgan Chase & Co.'s former head of precious metals has offered unprecedented insights into the trading desk that dominates the global gold market. Michael Novak, who ran precious metals trading at J.P. Morgan for over a decade, is being tried in Chicago along with his colleagues Greg Smith and Jeffrey Rufo for conspiring to manipulate gold and silver markets. The focus now is on the jury, which began deliberations late Friday, but the proceedings have already shone a new light on the inner workings of the business from its profitability and market share to its largest clients. And I don't want to spend too much time on this, but let's just... See what we can find here. The court was shown internal figures detailing the bank's annual profits from precious metals. The first time such detailed information has ever been made public, J.P. Morgan's earnings reports don't break out the results from the precious metals desk or even its broader commodities unit. In summary, the business is a consistent moneymaker for JP Morgan, notching up annual profits between $109 and $234 million a year. Between 2008 and 2018, the lion's share of that comes from trading in financial markets, but the bank does plenty of physical business as well. Trading and transporting physical precious metals makes the bank about $30 million a year on average, just with dealing in physical logistics. Still, the profits disclosed in the trial have been overshadowed more recently. In 2020, J.P. Morgan made a billion dollars in precious metals as the pandemic created unprecedented arbitrage opportunities, according to people familiar with the matter. J.P. Morgan holds tens of billion dollars in gold in vaults in London, New York, and Singapore. It is one of the four clearing members of the London market where global gold prices are set by buying and selling metal held in a few London vaults, including J.P. Morgan's and the Bank of England's. J.P. Morgan is the biggest player among a small group of bullion banks that dominate the precious metals market, and internal documents presented by prosecutors provide a glimpse of just how dominant a role the bank has played. In 2010, for example, 40% of all transactions in the gold market were cleared by J.P. Morgan. So it's just starting to come out. So we're going to be following this. This is topical to us. This does directly relate to our industry. And it has been a source of discussion, as we all know, for years and years and a source of debate. So we're going to follow that. And other than that, I mean, you look at the markets. Uh, We're taking a bit of a break here, but I find it hilarious, actually, this rally. I mean, I don't know anything more than you do. But if I had to guess, this thing's not going to give us a second chance at those lows. You know, if China invades Taiwan, well, then we will get a second chance. But, you know, I see even yesterday, it was remarkable when the news that at least the report that Pelosi was planning to visit Taiwan came out, the markets didn't dive on that. Today, we're getting a little bit more downward motion, but we're not getting a cratering. And it really just feels like that in a bull market, you know, bad news just doesn't matter. And now bonds are 2.54%. So we're a good let me just look here. So we are down almost 0.3. I mean it's 0.27 from last week, so that's a big deal. Gold is at 1791 dollars silver is above $20 oil interestingly is below $100 west texas at $92.89 and brent at $98.84 so oil remains below $100 meanwhile interest rates continue to go up in a sense it kind of looks like pretty good conditions from the fed's perspective oil is down markets are doing okay so you're not getting this, you know, catastrophe on raising rates. Bonds are two and a half percent, coming down pretty dramatically. So you gotta feel good about that. And no impending doom for the time being. So, you know, angling for a soft landing by the Fed. So, anyways, we are going long here. We have a wonderful show lined up with Eric Buckland, and then we'll probably return to a couple of more earnings calls. Last one was fascinating. So if you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Instagram at The Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to Joseph Hebert, president and CEO of Outcrop Silver and Gold for this week's CEO Spotlight. Joining us today, I am very pleased to welcome Joseph Hebert, President and CEO of Outcrop Silver and Gold for this week's CEO Spotlight. Joseph, welcome to the program. Thanks very much and great talking with you. Well, it's wonderful to have you. Tell me about your company. Tell us about Outcrop Silver and Gold. What are you up to?
1: Our crop silver and gold is in Colombia. That's where our projects are. We have, uh, I think, five five projects right now, but our real flagship is Santa Ana. And that's the one where we've really been focusing for the last two years. We've got over uh, 280 drill holes, 33, 34,000 meters. And uh, just for a you know, a quick snapshot of what that uh, the grade looks like. If you look look at a weighted average for all the significant intercepts, it's almost one.6 kilograms silver equivalent, so extremely high grade. And then uh, I think we're one of the few companies that if you made a list, I think we're one of the few companies with, with a real solid de-risk discovery that's extremely high grade and that's moving to the next stage of value of a compliant resource before the end of the year.
0: Well, it sounds very impressive. That sounds like, I think we could call that high grade. Now, it, is this primarily a silver project then, uh, the Santa Ana project in Columbia?
1: It uh, averages 860 grams silver to 7.5 grams gold. So on a gram basis, about you know about 80, 80 to 1 or so. And we uh, take it into account for the equivalency, but really it's 95% precious metals.
0: Okay, excellent. So it sounds like you have a nice deposit going on and you've done some drilling. So you're in Colombia. How is working in Colombia? Is it a good place to work? Uh, Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, technically speaking, it's like working in Chile, or Peru 40 years ago. I mean, it's extremely endowed. There's three Andean arcs that provide, you know, different gold and silver systems. A lot of world-class discoveries have been made. And the way we operate is relatively low risk because we only look for, you know, what we think are outcropping, significant outcropping deposits. And then um, Columbia, you know, in general has shown itself as a, as a safe jurisdiction because they have regularly permitted mines in a relatively short time frame. About eight significant projects over the last six years have been permitted and are going into production. So we found it a very good place to work so far.
0: Interesting. And so how far along are you then? You said you did some drilling. So like what is the roadmap and kind of where are you on this whole journey at the Santa Ana project?
1: I think we're in the position where we'll be able to have a assay cutoff for an independent QP. We've actually accepted the bid for a, a company to do the compliant resource. We have an internal guidance for that that we carefully address the BCSE requirements, and that internal guidance for the maiden resource report is between 45 and 55 million silver equivalent in ounces at between 550 and 750 grams silver per ton. So we'll have an assay cutoff, but we're just going to be charging ahead with probably three drill rigs, you know, right into the next year subsequent. And hopefully be in the position of, to release a, an upgraded report with maybe a double 12 months following the first. Basically, we have 14 very significant high grade shoots that are in about a four kilometer by one kilometer footprint. So, you know, well spaced for a, for a potential future mining operation.
0: Interesting. And on that point, I, I assume obviously you want to turn this into a mine. Would you want to do it or would it be someone else or is that? too far down the road really to figure out at this point point. and since you're still trying to figure out what you have there, I guess.
1: Yeah, I, well, I think we haven't closed the door to anything, but I think probably more likely we would not mind it ourselves. We would have it under good terms, you know, and, and take our percent or we would get the thing, you know, up to a hundred million ounces and, and uh, sell it at a very attractive EV per ounce. Uh, if you look at grade, you know there's like uh, the significance of the grade of the deposit is if you look at about it there's about thirteen significant primary or almost primary silver deposits uh in production or significant ones in production, and only three of them are above eight hundred grams silver equivalent per ton and uh we're we're getting i mean uh we we uh, pulled a hole with seven meters or two point one kilograms just the other day. And uh, I, th- I think we're going to be pushing that that high attractive grade number. It kind of, uh, right now, Silvercrest Las Chispas is the holy grail. They have almost, they have 880 grams in their feasibility.
0: And, you know, I think we'll be chasing them pretty closely with those kind of stunning numbers. That does sound stunning. <laughs> it's kind of impressive. Okay, great. So now tell me about, uh, you mentioned you have other projects. Is there anything else uh, on the horizon that we should be looking at? Or are you pretty focused, would you say, on Santa Ana? Or just tell us what else you're up to.
1: Well, we're definitely focusing on Santa Ana. Uh, that's where we can really add value for the shareholders. But we do have another project close to getting moving from application to title. And the the standout with, uh, that's our hell yet. And the standout with that is it was mined by the British up until 1930. And uh, we have underground sampling of almost four meters of 20 grams gold. And that's not just, uh, you know, a a single uh, sample. It's actually uh, blocked out by mining levels. So... We probably would just scout drill that, you know, six or eight holes to, to bring it to a stage of maybe being attractive as a JV or bring that forward ourselves, depending on uh, what our uh, financing price and capability look like after we do this resource.
0: And is that also
1: in Colombia? That's also in Colombia. All our projects in Colombia. Uh, we have another very attractive, very large uh, vein system. It covers over 115 square kilometers in Narino okay. called it's called Majama. Uh, we're bringing that forward, but a little bit of slower pace because it's a little harder to work down there, honestly. And then we have uh, two other projects. One immediately adjacent to Agnico and Newmont's joint venture called Anza. So we're we're in some discussions because it's it's our opinion and probably their opinion that they need our project to make theirs big enough for a or a major, and then we also have a project very close to B2 Gold's Gramalote, which which will be the first open pit gold mine in the Central Andes. So, so we've got some other things going. Yeah,
0: you sure do. So, as we wrap up here, then, what's the takeaway for investors as they think about this project? In a sense, what do you want them to know? In a few sound bites here.
1: Well, greatest king. It's a tremendous de-risker. You know, I mean, if if an investor is looking to a, a range of, of uh, investment opportunities, be sure and look at grade uh, because it does de-risk the project. Um, the other thing too is that we're in an important stage, which is to go from a discovery, a well-defined, and substantiated discovery to a resource, compliant resources at the end of the year. If you want just a simple comparison of a status of companies, BlackRock Silver as an example in Tonopah, Nevada. Uh, they released 42.6 million ounces at about 446 grams silver equivalent. And their market cap is five times ours purely for because of that resource report. And, uh, and fairly quickly after the resource report did, did they uh, see that grade. So, I think we're a five bagger, just with the resource report, or, or quite
0: possibly. Excellent. And so, if people are interested, where can they find you on the stock exchanges?
1: TSXV OCT, and then uh, we are we do trade on the Frankfurt Exchange,
0: but it's nominal. Okay. Excellent. And on the over the counter, are you there too? Yes. Okay. Excellent. If people want to learn more, they can go to outcropsilverandgold.com. Joseph Hebert, President and CEO of Outcrop Silver and Gold, thank you for joining us on this week's CEO Spotlight. Well,
1: it's a real uh, pleasure, Adrian, and it's also nice to to be able to describe the main project in the company.
0: And we'd like to thank Outcrop Silver and Gold for sponsoring this week's episode of The Northern Miner. Again, if you want to find them on the TSX Venture, it's OC. G. Turning to the website, Lucas Lundin has passed away at age 64. This is by Northern Miner staff, mining financier, and entrepreneur Lucas H. Lundin. has died in Geneva at the age of 64 following a two-year battle with brain cancer. The Swedish-Canadian Lundin, known for his shrewd business sense and willingness to take risks, was born in 1958 in Stockholm, Lundin learned the natural resource business from his father, the late Swedish resource magnate Adolf H. Lundin, and founder of the Lundin Group of Companies. Lucas started his career in the international energy and mining sectors in the early 1980s, working alongside his father. After earning an engineering degree from the New Mexico Institute of Mining and Technology in 1981, the financier had a hand in founding, leading, and building successful mining companies, including Lundin Mining, Lundin Gold. And Lequeira Diamond, he resigned from his corporate duties in May. At Lending Gold, which the entrepreneur founded in 2014, Lending oversaw the development of Ecuador's first large-scale modern gold mine and one of the highest-grade gold mines in the world, Fruta del Norte. But first, he made the decision to acquire the project from Kinross Gold, which had been unable to advance the asset after purchasing it in 2008 for $1.2 billion dollars. In a statement, Lundin Gold president and CEO Ron Hochstein lauded Lundin's timing and vision in acquiring the asset for only $240 million and then developing it. And we have a quote It was his keen view of a great asset in Fruta del Norte and the sense of timing to go to Ecuador, a country that many had deemed high risk and unworkable, that led to Lundin Gold. Through Lucas's vision and perseverance, the construction and operation of Fruta del Norte has changed thousands of lives in Zamora Chinchipe and changed Ecuador to be a new frontier for the responsible mining sector. And so we have a picture there of Lundin with publisher and now president of the Northern Miner Group, Anthony Vaccaro. And you can also see John Cumming, former editor-in-chief there. And you can read more about Lundin. It looks like he was a pretty nice guy. I heard pretty good things about Lucas Lundin, so our condolences to the family. And another titan of industry, tech CEO Don Lindsay, stepping down after 17 years at top job. So this is by Cecilia Gemazmi, Tech Resources, Canada's largest diversified miner, has announced its chief executive officer, Don Lindsay, will step down after 17 years in the role. Lindsay, who will leave by the end of September, will be replaced by two executives in what the company calls, quote, the culmination of a multi-year succession process. CFO Jonathan Price will take over as CEO, while COO Harry Conger will add the title of president. And Lindsey is 63, and he spearheaded a number of large deals during his time at Tech, but also received criticism from investors over his pay and performance. And we have a comment from BMO analyst Jackie Przyblowski, quote, in our view, the announcement is viewed as a negative given the success that Tech has enjoyed in terms of QB2 project execution, strong operating free cash flows, and the shareholder-friendly capital returns. So a changing of the guard at Tech Resources. And I was just thinking to myself, they must be doing well with their coal these days. And just a headline here, Frick at mining.com, globally more is being spent on coal than copper mining. So more bullish news for copper. You can read that at mining.com. Continuing on... El Dorado Gold sees 22% rise in Q2 operating costs, also by Cecilia Gemazmi. El Dorado Gold has reported an increase of 22% in operating costs for the three months to June 30th and a 26% jump in costs per ounce sold, forcing the miner to revise its consolidated cost guidance for the year. The company now expects operating costs to reach between $700 and $750 per ounce. While well, total cash costs were expected between seven hundred and ninety and eight hundred and forty dollars per ounce, all in sustaining costs in turn are expected to be between one thousand one hundred and eighty and one thousand two hundred and eighty well i don't know what the point of these other costs are like I get it there are other categories of costs but at the end of the day thankfully they created the all-in sustaining costs metric because this is the real number at least that investors want to know their real cost i want to say their AISCs their all-in sustaining costs are between 1180 and 1280 so they're still making money so i just wanted to touch on this cuz i think it's kind of topical and relevant i mean this is probably what most mining companies are one of their biggest challenges is right now is inflation the vancouver based miner attributed the ballooning figures mainly to lower-than-expected gold production in the first half of the year, continued inflationary pressures, and additional costs associated with the import charges on Olympia's gold concentrate shipments into China. Interesting. In the past few days, major miners, including Newmont, BHP, and Rio Tinto, have also flagged the effects of inflationary pressures and labor crunch in their results. More on that with Eric Buckland adding they expect these market conditions to continue into 2023. Okay, so you can read all about that on northernminer.com. Continuing on, Canada races ahead of U.S. on current lithium project pipeline. This is by Henry Lazenby, and it says Canada's lithium supply response is expected to post strong growth through 2031 and outperform the U.S. A new analyst by Fitch Solution Country Risk and Industry Research suggests... Canada's current solid project pipeline, prospective investment into petroleum brine production techniques in Alberta, and a fast-growing battery and electric vehicle manufacturing base in Quebec and Ontario provide more significant upside in the medium term due to Canada's more attractive regulatory environment, the authors say. Mine permitting times are shorter compared with the U.S. Interesting. And the current government, led by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, has proposed $3.8 billion in spending in April to support the mining sector. This includes the creation of infrastructure for remote projects, of which $1.6 billion were dedicated to critical minerals projects. And we have a quote from the report, there's a significant upside to our current forecast towards the end of the forecast period, with the current forecast seeing Canadian output consistently outperforming the U.S. and seeing the absolute gap in output rise from 2023 onwards. They continued in an emailed statement to the Northern Miner, our forecast is relatively conservative compared to announced nominal production targets from projects being developed, seeing Canadian production rise from 62,600 tons in 2023 to 190,300 tons in 2031. And this is interesting here as well, that it sounds like the government is trying to speed up the permitting In June, Canada's resource minister, Jonathan Wilkinson, stated in a speech that, quote, going forward, it simply cannot be the case that it takes up to 15 years to develop and bring into production new mines. I believe he said that at PDAC. And yeah, back to geopolitics. I mean, if anything's going to force their hand into permitting these mines faster, I would think it is geopolitical pressures and supply chains. So you can read that whole report by Henry Lazenby on northernminer.com. Argentina gets $290 million to develop lithium assets, build plants. And this is by Cecilia Gemazmi. Miners Ultra Argentina and China's Zengay Mining have committed $290 million in investments to explore and develop lithium deposits in northwest Argentina, as well as to build a plant. The Ministry of Industry, Daniel Scioli, announced it's kind of not clear here. Where this money is coming from, the government or from the miners? It sounds like the miners at first. Zangay Mining will initially invest $40 million in the exploration and development of the Laguna Verde lithium project in the province of Catamarca. A further investment of $250 million is planned at a later stage for the construction of a lithium carbonate processing plant. In June, Canada's Ultralithium and Zangay signed a definitive association agreement for the Laguna Verde project. And skipping down a bit, Argentina sits atop the, quote, lithium triangle, a region shared with neighboring Chile and Bolivia, which contains nearly 56% of the world's resources of the metal, according to the most recent figures from the United States Geological Survey. Wow. Now, isn't this interesting? Argentina wants to join the BRICS, and I'm sure they're going to be more than happy to welcome Argentina and Bolivia and Chile, if they want, into that economic alliance if they have 56% of the world's lithium. Continuing on, just a couple of headlines. Cameco earnings soar. The stock gained nearly 10% on Wednesday. This is a week ago after the company reported higher profits than expected amid an uptick in uranium prices. And this is by Henry Lazenby. And we have a quote by Tim Gitzel, Cameco president and CEO. We are benefiting from higher average realized prices in both our uranium sales and our fuel services sales as the market continues to transition and geopolitics continues to highlight concentration of supply concerns. This year has already been a contracting success with over £45 million added to our portfolio of long-term uranium contracts, and we continue to have a significant and growing pipeline of contract discussions. He also said, and we are being strategically patient As our primary driver is value, and we have significant leverage to market improvements with unencumbered pounds in the ground. Additionally, we are focusing our efforts on capturing conversion business as conversion prices are at record highs. And that's probably because Russia did a lot of the conversion, I'm assuming. So things are looking up at Cameco. Again, a very tough stock to invest in in the last decade or so, so hopefully they have a little luck. And finally, Denizen Mines and Uranium Energy fight over Explorer UEX. So more signs of bullishness in the uranium sector as there's now a fight over UEX by a couple of other mid-tiers. And so those are your news stories. Now let's take a look at metal prices. Prices, we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And on August 2nd, gold is trading at $1,772.41 per ounce. That is $15 higher than last week. And silver is trading at $20.26 per ounce. That is $1.66 higher than last week and back above $20. Platinum is trading at $911.88 per ounce. That is $33 higher than last week. And palladium is trading at $2,203.20 per ounce. That is $115 higher than last week. And turning to our industrial metals, copper is at $3.54 per pound. That is $0.26 higher than last week. Aluminum is at $1.11 per pound. That is a penny higher than last week. Lead is at $0.92 per pound. That is a penny higher. And nickel is at $10 even. That is $0.38 higher than last week. And tin is $0.03 lower at $11.07 per pound. Cobalt is a penny higher at $22.58 per pound. And zinc is... 16 cents higher at a dollar 52 per pound. Zooming out, it looks like we are catching a bid in the metals across the board, with the exception of tin, which is just a hair lower. Everything else is basically a hair higher, except for gold and silver, which I'd say are a little bit higher than everything else. So, again, metals catch a bid, and those are your metal prices and coming up we have lincoln strategic senior client director global mining recruitment eric buckland who gives us an update on the mining labor market and how technology and robotics are being increasingly used by mining companies so very interesting discussion there and also uh, we discuss how mining is being seen more as an environmentally friendly sector by new entrants in the industry and tips on how you can move up in the industry so lots to look forward to i hope you enjoy it and i will see you on the other side me today i'm very pleased to welcome back eric buckland senior client director global mining recruitment at lincoln strategic eric welcome back thank you adrian good to be back and uh, thanks for having me on again well it's great Uh, we always enjoy your insights in mining recruitment and so tell me i mean we've seen a lot of volatility this year commodities high commodities low how is business from your perch
2: well, from my perch, it's definitely a busy time in the industry and the skills shortage is still alive and well, but uh, I won't bore the readers with beating that drum because we're all very aware that uh, the workforce is is definitely challenging to find the people that you need. 46% of the mining workforce is eligible to retire in five years and difficulty in attracting the next generation of talent. Uh, still remains, you know, a a challenge for our industry.
0: And so the vicissitudes of the commodities markets, do they impact you at all? Or is it kind of like, you know, if we need a senior geologist somewhere, it doesn't matter if copper is at 250 or at 450, uh, same difference. Does that impact you? That does not impact me that much. Um, I have
2: seen clients perhaps slow down a higher uh, but because the industry is just so short of people and by the time you've hired and made a decision to hire a specialist like myself, you're pretty sure that that position is going to be needed in the larger clients that I have. They have contingency plans for if, and when they get to a slowdown. they might put in a, a hiring freeze that's well in advance. But some of the positions that they've hired me for will be going layoffs. I haven't experienced a layoff in our industry, at least for the last seven years. So
0: yeah, that says a lot. So it speaks to this whole idea of the difficulty this industry has been having in attracting new people. Can you speak a little bit to that? Like, how is that going? Is it still as difficult as it always was? Well, I think it's interesting because the the E&Y recent
2: report that they put out has workforce being one of the. I think the third from the top in terms of one of the biggest risks and, and things that they can over, that the industry can overcome, but their bottom three, the, the hottest ones, the license top rate, the decarbonization, the environmental and social impact. Our industry is doing a great job at fixing those and promoting those uh, to to be better. So they're not the, the industry uh, issues that that they were. They're more, more attractive. I can I, I see that I'm really touting the drama in terms of how mining is environmentally friendly, how it's necessary, how copper is, is important for health, it can kill bacterias and it's used in healthcare, how it can electrify the industry. And those are all important things that make it attractive. But if I'm a new grad student, do I really want to go into an industry just taking it at a high level? That is like, well, are they really environmentally friendly? Do they have a license to operate? I've heard that they're bad, as opposed to, well, I want to go to Amazon because Amazon seems like it's a great technology company. So I think the industry, we're doing well at advancing our place, and we are an important part of a new weaning of the green economy. But it's still difficult to attract new talent into that. To backfill for the workforce that is going to be, you know, retiring or eligible to retire.
0: Right, like we're going to have this crunch coming up. I think you were mentioning it on an earlier episode with, say, the baby boomers or whomever, like you know, the older part of the workforce that is retiring at a much faster rate than people are coming in. Uh, just on this, you know, a final point on this environmental side of things, like this will take time for this message to come out, and I think the the mining industry has been pushing this narrative a little bit which i think is wise this idea that you know actually by going into mining it's good it's sort of like camaco's line like we're good for the environment we're here to help we're going to help do this do you think that message is getting out do you have a sense of that or is it just uh who knows
2: i think that message is getting out and it's getting out uh, well but it's we're a little bit behind in doing it but we're getting it out well and i think you see it in in the mining shows for example if i go to some of the you know, booths, I was just recently at CIM and of course at PDAC, I'm at all the shows, but you see some of, the, some of the larger companies have booth where it's talking about that front and center about being good for the environment. It's not a picture of a giant dusty haul truck uh, in the middle of you know, the, the, the Amazon anymore. It's really about something that's, that's uh, about greening the environment. It's um, also a lot more about technology. It's not about a mining company Mm. building, you know, this is how we make a big hole in the ground. It's about the technology that goes into it. I think if we're going to attract a younger generation, you want to talk about autonomous hauling, which is interesting. And that's robotics. Uh, Talk about being a a high-tech company in a traditional industry. And that becomes attractive to help build the future generation, too, because not only you're, you're greening, but you're, oh, you're also technology. That's kind of
0: neat. That's very interesting. So this whole robotics area, how does that factor into your work? Because in a sense, like robotics, you think, oh, this is going to replace people. But at the same time, I suppose there's going to be new jobs of the people that have to run and maintain these robots. What are you seeing over there? Are, Are companies moving quite aggressively in this direction, you think?
2: Yes, they are. And I think they're doing that. Part of the skill shortage, but part of it, it's it's just better for the environment and it's also better economically. If I can have, if if I need ten haul truck drivers, well, I can have them up at site and I've got to have them at camp and I have to feed them and I have to fly them in, and I have to fly them out, or I could have the ten drivers working shifts in a downtown, say Toronto location, a downtown location in in Australia and they can operate the trucks from that location remotely, that is further away in the middle of nowhere, let's say, or a very hard location to get to, well, the worker's happier because they're in a much more environment that they like. They can get up, it's just it's, it's a little bit easier to find more people to do that job when there's more people in the city center that you could do. And they like they might like the job a little better because they're not gonna be separated from their family for long periods. We're not going to be you know flying as much it's just, it would be a little bit easier now that's coming and it's it's there with some companies but uh it's still we're still we're getting there so am i seeing it impact in terms of the hiring that i'm doing i still have to have the the high-end you know director of engineering and the director of automation the jobs that i hire for I'm not seeing any any uh, slowdown in, in terms of automation making my work slower.
0: Well, to your point, I mean, if I'm mining for coal, I would much rather do it in downtown Toronto than actually in the mine and getting, you know, I don't know, is it black lung they call it or whatever else? It sounds a lot healthier for everybody. And I suppose from like a cost perspective, I mean, maybe you have a small team of people that manage the machines if a robot breaks or something, but it's not this constant you know, larger team of miners and, you know, and the whole infrastructure and the cooks like it's probably just a much smaller, more cost effective operation. So I guess if we were to sort of speculate, there, there seems to be a slight inevitability on this whole march forward uh, of progress. Well, I just want to correct you on the black lung
2: disease. That's a long, sure. we're a Go long, ahead. we're a long, we're a long way from that. We're very, uh, you know, that's the the most important thing to come out of the mine is the miner itself. So we're, we really, yeah, uh, not something where we're, we're even comes into factor anymore with, you know, proper ventilation systems and, and uh, the health and safety at the forefront for, for pretty much all my mining clients. So we don't have that anymore, but um in regards to the, that, that is the balance and the shift that we, we have to remember in technology is it's, it's great. I could build a, a great, the most technology advanced mine in, say, the middle of Guyana. Well, that's great in one sense because I have a less of an environmental impact footprint there. I have less foreign workers that are coming in, expats to do the job because they can do the job, say, from home or from a remote. You know a different location but i have to balance that with the social impact that i have on the ground with people that are around that i've that i've affected you know, am i hiring a, a local workforce or am i just perceived as coming in taking the gold or silver and then leaving without any you know community impact on that so that's the balance between yes we're we're high tech and this is great we don't need any people here yeah but we do need people here we want people here because of the the balance and and the and the social impact of the communities around the area that we that we need
0: yeah that's a very interesting point i mean this whole idea that you come in with a bunch of robots and you don't hire anybody and then you take all the the resources yeah i could see that being a bit of a tension Uh, So, yeah, so very interesting. You know, it just goes to show these these issues are, you know, are subtle. It's Mm -hmm. not just like the black and white answers that we all want most of the time. So as far as the hiring, back to the hiring and just your job as a recruiter, how would you see the difference between, say, a bigger and a smaller mining company in terms of recruiting People is do they have the same challenges? Is it easier for a bigger company? Is it is it harder? I, I would assume the bigger company would be more attractive, but I don't know. What do you see there? Well, I'm glad you asked me that question, Adrian, because
2: one of my largest clients is exactly that. This big, large, you know, the top probably ten in in the top ten mining companies in the world. They're a great client of mine. I have. Lots of other clients that are much smaller, you know, with with uh, you know maybe one one operating cash positive mine and three other projects in development. So it becomes down to well, who's more attractive? I think that's where it comes down to the candidate. And I say this to candidates a lot: is that what does your next opportunity feel like? What you can do is what you can do. If you're a professional geologist with 15 years of experience in gold sorry can't make you a CFO I can't make you the assistant CFO you don't know the skill set it's not going to work so you can only do so much that that's what the skill set that you have but what does it feel like when you're getting interviewed by the company does it feel like these guys or, or gals have have hustle in them and 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 can make me an offer quick and I Get in there, I get all excited because we have this one mind and these are the challenges that it has. It has challenges of getting the gold out of the ground, but I can fix that. that will be great. You know, I can I can get my decision made fast because I'm right in there with the COO and I, I'm, I'm there and this is so exciting. Or, hey, I like this larger company. You know what? They think very carefully before they act. They're going to move a little bit slowly and deliberately. If I have a question, I can go down the hallway. I can get my, you know, there's three experts that the that the company has, and I can lean on them or ask them questions, so I can get this this more data and get the right answer uh, formulated here. So, what does that feel like to you? That's the the question. So, is it is it better with a big company? Is it better with a smaller company? It all depends on where you where what your heart is, and that's a that's an important question to ask yourself in your career journey of when you're in transition or thinking about transition. What's it going to feel like?
0: Interesting. Yeah, I guess that makes a lot of sense that it's kind of a personal context, context, context. It's a bit of a personal situation or a unique specific situation that you got to base on all sorts of factors. Just elaborate on 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 that too, between the,
2: the large company and the small company. I think small companies are challenged in the fact that they don't have the same amount of technology tools. At their disposal to find the person that they can even talk to to fill that role rather than a larger company that has huge amounts of tools. For example, we use um, at Lincoln Strategic, we use uh, these called web scraper tools. And yes, I've been in the mining industry and Lincoln Strategic has been around for a long time. Yes, we have a very specific database that has candidates in it, candidates categorized by, is this guy an open pit? Is this person underground? Is this, you know, lady uh, 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 geologist specifically in gold? What passport do they travel under? Do they have young children that perhaps are in school? Because that may limit when they will transition in their career because it's a lot easier to move children in the summertime than it is right when they start the school year. All these things that, that a big and specific database should have. Yes, we have that, but you also need these tools such as scrapers. And scrapers allow me to put in a very specific group of data and say to the, the internet, find me people that have this skill set. You say, well, that's just LinkedIn. Well, no, that's, that's LinkedIn. That's, uh, that's Indeed. That's Glassdoor. That might be somebody that registered their information on a, in a very specific conference that they went to. I need the internet to pull all that information into me to find that person. Well, great, I found that person. Can I use the technology tools to find out how I can contact them? Nice long list of great people is great, but unless you can reach out to them by using their personal email or a cell phone, maybe work email if you're lucky, if they, if they even, get, even gets to them. So that's where I think that the technology, whether you're large or small, you have to really embrace and use that technology to find the finding is the hardest
0: part. I could imagine. Now, one of the biggest issues that, you know, we discuss on this program and really everybody is discussing these days is inflation. Are workers demanding more money? Are companies paying more money for workers? Like how is that working out to you in the kind of day-to-day real life deals that you're seeing? I'm seeing it. I think the wages have, have
2: gotten higher, but I'm very wary when somebody is making a move because they just want more money. Because if, if it's just about the money, then it doesn't matter what the company feels like. Well, if it doesn't matter what it feels like, then we'll just get you the most money. Well, we get you the most money and you hate your boss. You hate what the company stands for. You hate the fact that, you know, maybe it's one of those companies that are going to put somebody in a coal mine in the middle of nowhere and give them black lung. Well, who cares? I'm making a whole bunch of money. That's wrong. You're not going to last very long there because it doesn't fit with your soul very well. And I don't want to work with somebody like that. that is just that only focused on the money. Money is important. Money makes, pays our bills. Money can add to calmness, but money can't make you hundred percent happy it'll actually get really close (laughs) but it can't make it yeah fair enough (laughs) fair enough
0: i guess i was thinking more generally like i mean you're just a little bit of microeconomics here like are you seeing wages go higher i'm seeing wages go
2: higher and i'm seeing it being more competitive uh for example with candidates just very early on the important question to ask them is where they are where are they in other hiring processes and now I'm getting a lot more. Yes, I'm on another hiring process, and this is where I am in the stage, and this is where the offer might come in. So it's more about the competing offers that are happening more and more, which is which is having an impact on wages go higher. Uh, it's not so much that the marketplace is higher; it's just overall, it's just more competitive, and you're going to be competing with talent. And yeah, that's dollars are part of it.
0: Interesting. Now, just in terms of retention, are people staying in their jobs? Are you seeing, you know, say post-COVID and, or even just in the last few months, are you seeing an increase in traffic kind of in and out of companies or is basically everything staying more or less as it always has or as it's been uh, in the previous years? It's it's pretty stable. I haven't seen a
2: mass, mass exodus. Um, certain companies, I'll see a mass exodus, you know, and that's more of a little bit of, economic factors if they've changed i mean we've seen um, you know a very large company do I want to don't want rec- to name them but a uh, big canadian company share prices fallen pretty harshly they had a mine in russia that uh, they they had to, to to sell so you know have i seen uh, exodus from them yes i have hmm. partly because having to cut back on a workforce partly because people have chosen to like I should look around now because there might be other things. But I'm not seeing, other than that, I'm not seeing a great shift of movement. It still takes, uh, I think, a a specialist if you're looking for the right talent. If you want three people for that, three candidates to consider for that role, you, you better do something more than just
0: host and pray your job. I imagine. Yeah. So it sounds like it's very competitive there for companies. Now, as far as the workers from the top to the bottom, do you have any tips as we wrap up here for people who are looking for work in the industry and just things that they can do as you are a mining recruiter after all? Do you have any uh, advice for them? Uh, the advice is to always
2: make sure that if you have having presence on the internet, be it if you're on Indeed, or LinkedIn, make that as up to date as possible. Because as we talked about earlier, the web scrapers, we're gonna find you, but we wanna find you accurately. We don't want to find you for a job that you did five years ago. We want to talk to you about something that's that's relative. And yes, it's great. I've got a database, so I can probably do that. I could probably target you and, and know that you're relative to this job, but I might not. So those kind of things are important. Realize that if you are on a job recruitment or job search with a major company, it's going to take time. It's going to take a lot longer than you than you think. Just things move slower with with larger companies, and and they take time. At this time, it was a lot easier. I think a few years ago that they they did move quick. Now they don't move as quick. A lot more things to be be uh, happening. So. You have to be patient sometimes with the with the job recruitment. Make sure your information is is up to date. And when you do have your resume out there, realize that the robots are going to be looking at it first. So, yes, pictures are nice and colors are nice in it. The robots see it first. So put out the words, make sure the words are right and accurate and not just your job description, but what did you do in that job? What are the percentage? What are the numbers? You're going to get hired a lot of times because either you made the company money or you saved the company money. Make sure those are talked about in your in your resume. And you know, if you work for a company called uh, TBZ Zinc or ABC Mining Company or One Two Three Uranium, tell us a little bit what One Two Three Uranium does. Are they a producer? Do they have one mine? Do they are they in exploration? Tell us a little bit about the company. Don't expect us to know. So put a little description under under your company, and then the three or four bullet points about what you do. Hopefully that helps the audience.
0: Yeah. So I guess if you're looking to move up in the industry, make the mining recruiters' life a little easier, and I guess get your SEO in order and uh, make yourself easily findable and get that information out there to people. Uh, yeah. Any closing thoughts?
2: I think that the the, the interesting part on that is yes, make yourself easily findable. And I know there's an audience out there that'd be like, I don't want to be found. <laughs> they don't want to be found because they're happy in their job and they're they're doing a good job and they like where they are. And you know, they turn off the notifications. <laughs> like, you're probably gonna get found. That's okay. <laughs> Just uh, at least be aware of it. And things can change quickly. I've spoken with many people who are not interested in a job this week, and then two months later. Through no fault of their own, company changed direction, the boss has changed, circumstances changed, and they're, they're out for nothing they've done. So it's okay to be found, but you want to be found by the right people. You know, Large specialist mining recruitment companies, not generalist firms.
0: Sound advice. Well, Eric Buckland, Senior Client Director, Global Mining Recruitment at Lincoln Strategic, thank you for joining us on this week's Northern Miner Podcast.
2: Thank you, Adrian. I appreciate you inviting me and uh, hopefully help your audience. I'm always available anytime if for people looking for a career change or career advice, and we'll see everybody at the shows, I'm sure. Sounds good. Well, thanks again, Eric. And do you have a website where people can find you? Lincolnstrategic.com is always good, or just type in Eric Buckland mining into any search, search uh, engine, and uh,
0: I'll probably come up in your
2: first two searches.
0: Okay, excellent. Okay, well, we'll see you next time. Thanks again. Thanks, Adrian. We have it another episode of the northern minor podcast i hope you enjoyed our interview with eric Buckland, and we'd like to thank him again for joining the podcast and for giving tips to anybody out there who's trying to make their way in this industry and with that if you want to help out the podcast leave us a review in the apple podcast directory share it with your friends and until next week take care